I'm trying to start a celebration all by myself because today is Father's Day. Thank you, Mary. We'll get the rest of them next time. Today is Father's Day, and to introduce our theme this morning, I want to highlight one difference between the celebration of Father's Day and Mother's Day, which I shall get in trouble for saying, because I should be saying Mothering Sunday. They even win at that. Mother's Day has two names. Father's Day only apparently one. Now, I don't mean to look at the difference that overall 40% less is spent on the average Father's Day gift than on the average gift on Mothering Sunday, because that would look needy. I don't mean to highlight the fact that of those gifts, £3.6 billion is wasted on ties and sweaters, and only £1.4 billion invested in the gadgets and electronics, which this father at least really wants, although this is a tragedy. Nor that dads are 60% less likely to be taken out for a meal on Father's Day, and if they're lucky enough to do so, 25% less will be spent on that meal. It's not even that only 64.1% of fathers will receive a card today, or that 81.3% will on Mothering Sunday. Nor, although it does seem somewhat unfair because only 53 countries celebrate Father's Day at all, while Mother's Day is celebrated in 172. The difference is a little closer to home. The difference is part of the way that we treat the two holidays in church. Now, dads, if you're at all competitive, and most dads will be, there is at least one statistic that brings us hope. You see, in church, the word father appears in the Bible 1,082 times. It's actually the fifth most frequent word in the Bible. Mother, I'm sorry to say, appears only 237th. It is the 14th most popular word in the Bible, sandwiched between brother and light. So we take strength in that, but mothers, do not fear. I'm not saying that fathers are more important than mothers. Obviously, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. Here's my problem. It's the way that churches do Father's Day. It's the preacher. It's the difference between the way we preach on Father's Day and the way we preach on Mothering Sunday. Let me read you an extract from Jonathan Acuff, author of Stuff Christians Like, who has created for us two example sermons, one for Mother's Day and the second the way that most pastors preach on Father's Day. On Mother's Day, the sermon most people will hear goes like this. Mums are amazing. They are like human unicorns, special, beautiful, smelling of lavender and night jasmine, deserving of our gratitude and our complete affection, back rubs and pedicures. Mothers, please stand so that we can shower you with applause and have the ushers give you roses, commemorating this moment when we, the body of Christ, were able to bask in your combined loveliness. On Father's Day, however, the sermon that most pastors preach goes something like this. Dads, what are you doing? Seriously, get your act together. It's time to be model leaders. It's time to put away jobs that consume you. It's time to put down your iPhone and serve your family with your heart and your soul. Man up. Stop messing about. Your role is critical to the family, and it's time for you to get motivated and get active. It's time to go to work for your family, your community, and your world. There's nothing wrong with Mother's Day sermons. They tend to be measured in love. They're all about heart, attitude, and family. But Father's Day, those sermons are measured by action, by what we do, or by perhaps what our fathers do not do. 
We measure dad's work ethic. And so the message this morning is that if we measure either mums or dads, or especially our faith by our work or our actions, if we measure it by what we do, we will simply never measure up to the task. And it is this that leads to burdens, burdens of guilt, shame and frustration, of constantly trying harder and harder only to fail again and again. As Jean put it so beautifully in our passage from Isaiah, we burden ourselves to do what? To do and do, to do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. I love the clarity and simplicity of this passage. It's one of those passages that you almost can't believe is in the Bible until you see it written down. Isaiah is literally mocking the scale and futility of their efforts, of my efforts, and of your efforts to win God's favor Why do we fight to win God's favor? In the face of his invitation to simply rest in him, let the weary rest. Isaiah warns them. He threatens them. As a prophet, literally, he promises them. If they don't rest, then they will learn instead through foreign lips and strange tongues, which all sounds a bit Nigel Farage, but it just means that in exile, the Assyrians will force them to learn the truths that they would not learn at home. It means that if the people will not learn the easy way of faith, then they must learn the hard way of experience. They will go out, Isaiah writes, and fall backward. So Isaiah tells them that their attitude of self-reliance will turn God's blessing of the law, the very word of God, becomes a curse. He curses them with it again in verse 13. The word of God will become, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Has your faith, has your religion become that? Because the message this morning is that God longs to set you free. Jesus longs for your burden to be light. I used to think that the rest from the burden of the law and, and works was a New Testament thing, a Jesus thing. But the scriptures are soaked in this teaching all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Why? Because the urge to try to work your way into God's heart and the burden of failure that that brings is as old as time. And so is God's longing for our freedom. The whole purpose of the Bible isn't to tell you how to behave so that God will love you. It isn't a series of tests and traps and hoops to jump through to prove how much you love God. It is to prove. It is to reveal how much God already loves you and how he longs for you freely and merely to love him in return. The message this morning is one of freedom and grace, which is the context of our passage, if you turn to it, in Galatians. Galatians 5 and 6, in fact, the entire book of Galatians, is a letter all about freedom. Skip back with me to verse 13, and we'll set up some background to the passage this morning. Galatians 5.13, we read, You, my brothers and sisters, Paul is aligning himself with them whenever he uses that term. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul is speaking to a particular church, a community of people, grappling with this very idea, this balance of freedom and flesh. 
There were those within the Galatian church who longed for the safety, the security, the moral compass and guidance of the law. There were those in the church who feared a moral collapse if Gentile Christians were not circumcised. They wanted everyone to adapt and conform still to the Torah, to the Jewish law. And Paul is absolutely clear. In fact, he stakes his name and reputation on the importance of freedom and grace. At the start of chapter 5, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. It's the sermon in a sentence. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And Paul continues and he stakes his reputation upon it. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, that is, if you let yourselves be submitted to the full rule of the law, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. It is a matter, Paul says again and again, of life and death, of burden or grace, of putting to death, of crucifying with Christ the acts of the flesh and letting Christ alone fulfill the law. We must let go of legalism. It's easy to say that we live by the Spirit, but do we really trust the Spirit to be all-sufficient, or do we hang on to just a little bit of legalism just in case? Paul says we are alive and alive only in Christ because we have put to death our old selves. We forget that too often in our churches, don't we? To live. It's the Motto, if you like, of the church this year, Alive, Alive 2014. Will you turn to the person next to you or those about you and just simply say, I am alive. Tell them, Christ has set me free. Seems odd, doesn't it, to come alive in church? We're used to being zombie Christians, the walking dead, holding on to our past crucified lives. The old you is dead, crucified with Christ. Don't be a walking zombie, but seize your new beautiful creation, your new life alive in Christ. Don't toy with the Holy Spirit, but hedge your bets on just a little bit of legalism. Paul says it is a choice that is a matter of life and death, of choosing burden or grace. And then, after stressing their freedom from the law, we read at the, char- at the start of chapter 6, verse 1, Paul addresses directly the tension, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin. I can almost imagine the Galatians leaning forward, because after chapter after chapter of freedom, Paul talks about catching someone in sin. Their exact fears about freedom have come true. Paul must unpack for them the single, simple law of Christ what it means to love one another. Paul must show them how that works in the rough and tumble of a real-life situation, of a real community, a real church, and yes, addressing a real sin. And while they are not under the law, they have, as we have today, a moral obligation to protect, to restore, and to help one another. Not being under the law does not mean anything goes. It doesn't mean a free-for-all. It doesn't mean that freedom from do and do, do and do, is a free reign of sin and sin, sin and sin. 
But in place of rigidly enforced legalism and legal punishment under the law, Paul stresses again their freedom when he writes, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Paul speaks not of judgment, not of punishment, not of public exposure, but of private restoration. The word restore that he uses here is actually the same word that they would use to describe the setting of a broken bone. Paul literally says that the sinner is to be restored, made whole. They are to be healed and restored, which is the opposite of the way of the law because the law used to break bones, not set them. The law used to judge people and then stone people and even kill people. Paul says the way of freedom doesn't stone and break bones, it makes them whole. We repair and restore not in our strength or out of our righteousness, but by the Spirit, Paul writes. You who live by the Spirit, he says. Not your strength, not your righteousness. And it is restoration done in a gentle way. Literally, the phrase translates in a spirit of gentleness, of gentle humility, of tender-heartedness, of love. And Paul immediately warns them against the possibility, the temptation of pride on behalf, on the part of the one restoring. Paul is not saying, watch out, or you might also be tempted, because sinners are wildly contagious. He's warning against the danger of pride, a topic he picks out again and again. We read it at the end of chapter 5, and again in chapter 6, verse 3, and again in chapter 6, verse 5. We must beware pride, because when we carry pride, our hands are too full to carry one another. But pride, more than that, also risks a return to the burden of the law. For what is pride but judging and valuing ourselves highly for our, for our actions and for wanting to be seen to carry the largest possible burden alone? Sometimes I think church is like an episode of the world's strongest man. Have you seen that television program? It's normally on in the run-up to Christmas and New Year. In case you've missed it, it's basically these sort of fat, or actually, no, they're not fat, they're just very large, very strong Nordic gentlemen, normally called Magnus von Magnusson. And there's this one big guy, and he has at the end to lift these things, they call them the Atlas Stones. They're these five enormous and really awkward heavy boulders. And they stand in an arena surrounded by a crowd of about 100, 150 people, cheering them on, willing them to lift these five heavy stones that they must lift cleanly and awkwardly from the floor and put on a ledge which is about this high, about the same height as this lectern. It's incredibly impressive. This one man cheered on by the crowd can lift these five heavy stones. Let me give you some idea just how impressive it is. The heaviest Atlas stone ever lifted weighed 258 kilograms. That's roughly the same. Virgin Atlantic lets you take 24-kilogram bags on a plane. So that's roughly 10 24-kilogram fully-laden suitcases like you might take on holiday, but in one awkward stone lifted by one man again and again, again and again and again, while the crowd cheers him on and cheers him on. But here's what I want you to know this morning. 258 kilograms is impressive, but it does mean that there is a limit Presumably, if the stone weighs 259 kilograms or above, even Zadrunus Savicus, a word I had to practice several times last night, the world's strongest man cannot lift it. Zadrunus can lift 258, but not 259. Well, he could, of course, actually, easily lift 259, 260, let's say 300. Easy. How? How? 
if he stopped trying to do it alone? What if Zadrunas got that crowd of 150 people to help him? Would he not move more rocks that way? Could he not move heavier stones? If instead of watching him, the crowd all simply pitched in and helped, would they not move the stones faster if they moved them together? Would that one man not feel less strain, be less likely to get injured? The only difference, of course, is that that man, Zadrunas, would no longer be the centre of attention, could no longer boast of being the world's strongest man. How often are our churches like that? How often do we applaud those we see carrying the heavy burdens rather than simply pitching in and lending a hand? Or how often in pride do we lift those burdens and are unwilling to share them that we might be centre of attention? Paul says, church isn't supposed to be like that. Don't let one guy carry every stone. Chapter 6, verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. Paul uses two very different words for burden or load in this passage, and it leads to some confusion. He contrasts bastazo in verse 2, which is a heavy, crushing, oppressive burden, a heavy, unliftable load. Let's call it a 259-kilogram stone, a stone never designed to be borne by a single person, a burden that would be better if we were rid of it. It is those burdens that we are here for on Sunday mornings, to lift them from one another's shoulders. That's what our house groups are for. That's what our fellowship with one another is for. And Paul contrasts this in verse 5 with the individual load, from which we get our word literally portion. It's a a light load, a personal load. In his time, it was a a soldier carrying their own kit, fulfilling their own responsibilities. If you're off on holiday soon, then you'll probably have one small item of hand luggage. You probably won't have 10 suitcases of 258 kilograms unless you're traveling with my whole family. It used to amuse them when I turned up at hotels. I'd, I'd travel often with a small bag, and then they would see me arrive with one of those giant trolleys full of things. and say, oh, your family's with you. The load you're called to bear alone is only your hand luggage. It's enough to see you through the day. Enough for the journey. Help one another, Paul says, with the heavy luggage, with the hold baggage. The word pride he uses in verse 5 about carrying my laptop through the airport is not the same pride he uses negatively as sinful boasting or comparison with others in verse 3. It is simply a personal reflection, satisfaction rather than fuss about taking care of our own luggage. But we have, Paul says, mutual responsibility to bear without pride, to carry, to share, to remove from one another the heavy luggage, the atlas stones. What a fantastic community to belong to. For that is church. And how I pray our church will look like that. That we will not cheer those on who labor, but roll up our sleeves and lend a hand. Only, Paul says, under the freedom of grace and not under the law are we truly alive. So let us put down our pride that we may better carry our burdens and those of others and allow others to perhaps share the load that we thought we alone would have to bear. For it is only in the strength of the Spirit and in the power of Christ we stand. And so on this Father's Day, let me close with one dad's perspective on freedom. Presently, I'm going out in our little red car quite regularly with Tom as he practices 
for his driving test, and it terrifies me. Not because he is a bad driver. He is an excellent driver. But because it means after teaching him to walk, talk, read and write, after 17 years of laughter and tears, after driving, it doesn't seem there's much else for me to teach him. And so I know that not long after he passes his driving test, I will face my hardest test as a father. He will head off into the world a fine young man, and I must let him go. I have never known anything else close to the love of being a father, and I rejoice in the great gift of three healthy children and the gift of fatherhood itself. It helps me understand how God loves me and how nothing can separate me from that love. But it also means that now I have three teenagers and I must learn the hardest lesson of all. That fatherhood is not about taking charge, jumping in, solving every problem or keeping total control. It is simply about demonstrating love, giving trust, teaching independence, and yes, ultimately, granting freedom. Hopefully my children will not regard the rules and boundaries I've given them as they grew up and matured, and their own adherence to them as the substance of my relationship with them. Because if they did, they might think that my love for them might ever be less if they failed. And they will sometimes fail. On that basis, the relationship between us would be hopelessly burdened by my unmet expectations and their feelings of guilt. So as a dad, can I share this with you on Father's Day? The rules are still important. They are protective and good and beautiful. That's why there are rules still in the New Testament of the church. And yes, our actions and works can be important when they are evidence of the internal working and transformation of the Holy Spirit. But neither is the substance of our salvation or can affect in any way our relationship with our Father. A father's relationship so deep, so perfect, and so lasting that it grants us true freedom. True freedom is the confidence to fail in the knowledge that failure changes nothing. This is the kind of love that sets us free. A father's love. A love free from work, free from burden, and free from guilt. And so this Father's Day, let us turn our hearts and minds to the kingdom and the king. The king whom we may call Abba, our father because he sacrificed everything that we may know just that kind of freedom. Thank you, Dad, and happy Father's Day.